Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, church. Ready to get after it today? We're going to be in John chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab those. Before we jump into the message this morning, though, I want to give a special thanks to a group of guys who have traveled here all the way from Dallas, Texas. Even though their flight uh, got canceled for, because of the hurricane and whatnot, they came here and they've been serving at our campus over on Strickland Road this weekend. With many of you came out for our work day yesterday. If you weren't able to make it out, don't stress out about it. We're going to do it again. So it's going to be great. Uh, some of you have actually said, oh man, I don't want to miss it. But hey, we're going to have more opportunities, trust me, as we're getting ready to host people over there. Uh, but I want to give a special thanks to our, our friends from Dallas. So if you're one of the guys that came from Dallas, would you just stand up? We'll give you a hand. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. Got some guys in the back. And uh, thank you so much, guys. If you bump into them in the hallway, just give them a hug, tell them thanks, give them a high five, whatever. We got one guy I could never give a high five to, but we got some, some different friends here. A guy that was near and dear to my heart, uh, one of the most natural evangelists I've ever met, just naturally talking about Jesus when he meets people, is a good friend of mine, David Shivers, and he's the pastor there of men and, and evangelism at that church, and I served as his intern back then, so I'd get him coffee and whatever it is that he needed, and so if you give him a hard time about sending me to get coffee, that'd be great. We'd love it if you give him a hard time in the lobby, uh, but we're thankful for him. And then also today. Uh, oh, one of the things those guys did, by the way, is they went and they did some surveys after the workday was over with yesterday at some of the homes around our campus just to find out what some of the needs were at some of those houses. And we've got a weekend coming up called Southbridge Serves. We do it every year, at least once a year, where we'll go out and try and be the hands and feet of Jesus in our community. And uh, one of the things they did is they asked people, what do you need done around your house for whatever reason you can't do financially or physically or whatever, clean gutters, pull weeds. Uh, and we're going to go do that. And so we're going to want you to mark your calendars for the November 10th weekend. You're going to get some opportunities sent to you with exact time slots and exact jobs of what people will do. Uh, but will you just clear your calendar that November, that Friday, Saturday, um, Sunday time period on the November 10th weekend will be coming up uh, about a month from now. And you'll get more information uh, later this week about some opportunities to do that. So mark your calendars for that. But I also want to say um, that we're excited that it's the first weekend that our new small groups and care pastors, we've been searching for him for two years. Uh, and Dave Morley is here with us today. So we just give Dave a welcome too. Thank you so much, Dave, for being here with us. Right up here with his wife, Leslie. I didn't see you, so I didn't want to call you out, but now I see him. He's right here. And so he's right over here. Make sure you say hi to them and welcome them into town too. But uh, I'm going to pray for us and we'll jump into John chapter 17 together. Sound good? No, I don't know. Uh, come on, let's go. All right, there we go. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you uh, so much. We can gather in your name. And uh, we get to sing praises to you and that many of us have been redeemed by you. I pray for any of you that don't know you as Savior that today would be the day of salvation. And I pray, God, that as we open up your scriptures, you'd open up our hearts and you'd change us. That we wouldn't just talk about a series title of an encounter, but we'd have an encounter with you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Many of you have heard some of my stories before, and you know that I'm not the most mechanically inclined. In fact, it's fun as the pastor when we do work days to have people walk up and say, I got that, pastor. Why don't, why don't, why don't you just kind of go over there and talk to somebody or do something? We know you can talk, uh, but we don't want you to hurt anybody. And so they kind of take the work project over, and I've caught lawnmowers on fire. I've electrocuted myself. I've hurt myself trying to cut wood before, all kinds of things. And so if you hang around long enough, I'll hurt myself, and you'll get to laugh at it. And so just be a part of this family. We'd love to, to have you. But what many of you don't know, is that my father was actually a certified mechanic. <laughs> Let that sink in for a moment, right? <laughs> is he your biological father? Or yeah. yeah. Uh, and one of the things that happened, well, when he passed away, one of the things I inherited from him were a bunch of tools. 
And every once in a while, there'll be a project around our house, and I'll go out to my toolbox. I don't even know what's in there. I'll, like, grab something out of there, and I'll, like, I'll look at it. And not only do I not know how to use it, I don't even know what it's supposed to do. And I'll look at it, and I'll think to myself, why does this thing even exist? Have you ever done that with stuff in life before? Ask yourself, why, why is this here? Like, why does this exist? Maybe you start a new job. Pastor Dave, as you go through our manual, and you'll get, you know, the handbook when you come in, and we'll try and surprise you with all kinds of policies we have. We even have a do not behaviors list. And we'll tell you there's a story behind every one of them. And, and, and I'll tell you about them at some point too. Uh, but you read through a manual of like a new place that you go to work at, and every once in a while you read a policy, and you go, that's not just general wisdom. There's a story here. I want to know why does that exist? I saw one guy uh, post on a forum uh, this week that he was talking about a new job that he had. And it said that you're not to bring a BB gun or machete to work with you, <laughs> which is like good general wisdom. But the fact they had to write it down, you go, why is, it, why is that in here? Or you think about different products that are out there. You ever see ridiculous products? And I brought a, a picture of a couple. I'm going to put one up on the screen and just let you process it for a moment. <laughs> yep. I'm pretty confident the guy who invented this had never used a DVD before he invented it because this product was discontinued in 2009, which I'm remembering DVDs being popular. That was way too late. Like, why does that exist? Why did anyone make that? It's not a V. It's like the, t- how does that, why do you do that? Or some of you, you drink energy drinks. You know, you have one of those five-hour energy drinks. You give yourself a little caffeination and it'll pump yourself up. Do you know they make a decaffeinated energy drink? It's like the non-energy energy drink. Like, why does that even exist? And I know there, there's a big market to sell products to, to pet owners, dog owners, and cat owners. And we won't cause any division today and ask you, but we got some dog people here today. Got some dog people? <laughs> dog people, all right. Little dog people are going, yeah, 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 that's great. <clears throat> so. And you kind of bond with your dog when you take him on a walk, right? And you don't want to miss that if you're like a ferret owner or a gerbil owner or even a goldfish owner. And so they make this product. It is the goldfish walker. Which I think about my friends from Dallas. And and one of the shows I like on TV is the the Shark Tank. You seen the Shark Tank? I'd love the owner of this product to bring this on the Shark Tank. Have Mark Cuban lean in. Could you tell me how many of these you've sold? Well, you know, it's kind of in the trial phase. Zero. That is the answer. None. Why does that exist? Sorry, goldfish owners. I meant to offend you. <laughs> but we ask that question about a lot of stuff. And we can go on talking about that laws and policies and procedures and products and all kinds of things in life. But do you know that philosophers tell us there's three big questions that everybody asks? Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And underlying that is this. Why do I exist? And some of you might have laid in bed last night and thought about that yourself. Why am I even here? Why do I exist? We all, every human being, ask that question at some point. And that's the question we're going to ask as we go to John chapter 17, because that's the, the question that John chapter 17 answers, especially in the first five verses. And so if you have your Bibles, join me in John chapter 17 and verses 1 through 5. We'll, we'll survey in some of the rest of this, this chapter, but in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5 is where we're going to focus. And if you haven't been with us, we started at the beginning of the summer this series going through the book of John. If you were with us, it was like fast action. You know, Jesus feeds 5,000, walks on water, heals a leper, raises Lazarus from the dead for the first 12 chapters. But then you get to chapter 13 and it's like, everything slows down. There's no more crowds. Public ministry is done. And now he's just with his 12 closest followers and he washes their feet, even Judas. And then Judas leaves. 
and he's teaching the disciples, and he says, all, one of you is going to betray me. All of you are going to abandon me. I'm leaving. Their dreams are shattered. They left, ev- they left everything in their life, houses, jobs, families, to follow Jesus, and now Jesus goes, peace. I'm out of here. I'm done. I've done what I needed to do. And they're like, whoa, we thought it was going to go a whole lot longer, and we didn't see you dying. Their worlds are shattered, and Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Oh, that's easy to say. Trust also in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I'm sending the helper, the Holy Spirit to you. And here's what you need to do. You need to abide in me. You see, you don't just go out and make up fruit by being productive and starting your own ministry and get some church going. You abide in me. Abide in the, I am the vine. Stay connected to me. And then I'll bear fruit through your life. Oh, and by the way, it gets worse. Not only am I going to get killed, but people are going to kill you and think they're doing it in the name of God. So they're in a place of sorrow. In John chapter 16 and verse 6, the word that, that, that Jesus uses there for your hearts are in sorrow is for a child that loses their parent. Their worlds are falling apart. And he says, but I'm sending you the helper. He's the guide. And he will live in you. It's better, it's to your advantage that I'm, le- it's better for you to have the Holy Spirit living inside of you than to have Jesus right face to face with you walking through this life. And he says, take heart, have courage. In this world you will have trouble, but I've overcome the world. But then we're left going, all right, I understand that this place is temporary and I've got the Holy Spirit and it's about more than just this place, but what do I do while I'm in this place? Oh, that's what he starts praying about in John chapter 17. Look at the first five verses. This is when Jesus had spoken these words, and that's right, he's just said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up his eyes to heaven, so he begins to pray. And what we have in John chapter 17 is the longest prayer we have recorded by Jesus. This is really the Lord's Prayer. We get, you know, in in Matthew and and, and, in Luke, we get examples of what people call our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be. That's a model of how to pray. But here we actually have him praying, a long version of prayer, not just your will be done or some different phrases we get in the Bible, but this is the place where we get to see Jesus communing with his Father. After he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In order to appreciate this passage, you've got to understand the intimacy of what's happening here. And Jesus is inviting us into the Holy of Holies. See, in the Old Testament, uh, you didn't get to go in the Holy of Holies except for one time a year, and, and we wouldn't get to go. It's only one guy. It was the high priest who got to go on one day, the Day of Atonement. After a bunch of preparation, he entered into the Holy of Holies. And so think about how sacred, how solemn, how reverent that moment would be. And here we've got Jesus taking us into the Holy of Holies, inviting us into an ongoing conversation that he's having with the Father. We're hearing Jesus, our Savior, moments before the cross, pray. Now, I'll tell people, periodically I'll do you know, relationship counseling, and we'll talk about a marriage or whatever, and, and oftentimes I'll say, if you, you want to grow in intimacy, pray together. And then I'll usually tell one of them, typically the husband, I'll pull to the side and I'll say, hey, you should say to your wife, let's pray And then, right before you go to pray, say, you go first and let her pray. Because what will happen in that moment is that you'll hear intimately what's on her heart. And you'll hear how she relates with God. Because 
when you hear someone pray, whether it's that they're on a mountaintop and they're excited and celebrating something or whether the sorrows are heavy, it comes out in prayer. And so if you want to know what's on the heart of your Savior, you come to this prayer. And what does he pray? Look at it. Don't just take my word for it. And those five verses that we just read, in just five verses, five times he talks about glory. Five times in five verses. If you go through the whole prayer, he does it about eight times. But just in those five verses, five times, he says, talks about glory. Glorify your son. Well, that sounds selfish, but then you look at what? That the son may glorify you. That's why he's here. And then you continue to go through and read about it. I've glorified you on earth. Father, glorify me in your presence so that the father can be glorified. And so you, you see it here, and you shouldn't be surprised by that because this book, this whole book, the Bible, is a book of glory. You go back to the very beginning of it. In Genesis chapter 1, you read, you know how it starts? In the beginning, God. It's bad news for some of you, by the way. This book isn't about you. It's actually about him. You see, some of us, for all the questions we have in life, we think we just want to navel gaze. I think if we just look within, then we'll find all the answers. There's some questions you will not find by looking within. You've got to look to one who's more glorious than you. And the question we're asking today, why do I exist? You've got to look to the one who's more glorious. You exist to glorify him. In the beginning, God, and then Genesis chapter 1 is all about his creation. He starts to create on the first day and the second day. And seven days of creation, on the seventh day he rested, but the sixth day was the pinnacle, the crown jewel of all of his creation. It was you. Male and female, he created them in his own image. You were created to reflect his image. You were created for glory. The book's about him in the beginning, God. He creates you in his own image to reflect his glory And then you jump to the end. See, if you're new to the Bible, you don't have to read from beginning to end, FYI. Most people get stuck at Leviticus anyways. And so you can read just the beginning, and then you can jump to the end. Do you know what happens at the end of the book? There's a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. And he talks about what heaven's going to be like. He's going to wipe every tear from every eye. There's not going to be any sin. There's not going to be any pain. But but let me read you this if you want a glimpse of what it's like there. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 23, almost the very end of the book, it says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why not? For the glory of God gives it light. Think about that. Some of you, one of the guys from Dallas came up to me and said, you know, the the sunrise here is so beautiful in North Carolina. I was like, that's way better than in Texas. You should move. And uh, we got trees and everything. That's awesome. It is beautiful, and it declares the glory of God. But imagine a place where there's no need for sun or moon. The next time a hurricane comes, you don't have to rush to Walmart by a flashlight because the glory of God would shine the place. Can you imagine that? He says, the glory of God lights it, and the Lamb is the lamp. That's Jesus Christ. What an... So the book starts with God's glory, it ends with God's glory, and everything in between is about God's glory. You were created for his glory, you're redeemed for his glory, and you're to live for his glory. Even in the most mundane things in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, you can look it up on your own at some point, it says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so it's not even the pinnacle moments of life, it's just the daily mundane stuff, you were created for his glory. And so our answer to that question, why do we exist, is the main point of this message today, the overarching theme is this, that you were created for God's glory. That you were created for God's glory. And and you see it in this passage, and and some of you maybe, maybe read that and thought to yourself, well... Yeah, it says about glory five times in these verses. Would you go through the whole Bible? Let me just read you this verse. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. You see it all over. Everyone 
Southern translation of that would be all y'all. All y'all who are called by my name, whom I created. Why were you created? For my glory. And so to say that you were created for his glory implies two things. One, you have a creator, just FYI. You didn't just exist out of nothing. You didn't come from dirt. You're not an animal that's evolved. You are made in the image of your creator. You were created by God, and you were created for a purpose. Which reminds me of a statement my father-in-law used to always say. He'd say if you were kind of, you know, kind of loafing around doing something, he was kind of a go-getter, do-it-all-time type guy. If I was being a little slow on something, he'd go, walk like you got a purpose in life, son. My wife told one of our daughters to put something away uh, this past week. I don't know if you've your kids ever done like when they kind of like this. <laughs> like they were like, how are you going to fall over? Like what's happening there? Like, would you go put this away? And she's like wandering over to the thing. And I said, walk like you got a purpose in life, kid. Because you do. And your purpose is to bring glory to God who made you. And so you see it in Isaiah. You see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do. The very vision of our church that we talk about being a city on a hill, do you know the verses that talk about there? That you let your light so shine that you live in such a way that non-believers would look at your life and as a non-believer, not a follower of Jesus, maybe agnostic, they go, the only explanation for that is God. So let your light so shine before men that they would see your good deeds and glorify your father who's not glorify you, not be like, wow, you're an awesome, you are so generous, you are so kind, you are so not. But the only explanation for your generosity, for your kindness, for your selflessness is Jesus. That's, our, that's how this city is going to be transformed, but you have to be transformed first. And then we would reflect this glory. And you see it in this passage, Jesus, and he's praying that he glorified the Father, that he would receive glory so that the Father would be glorified. But it, you'd be right if you looked at this and you said to me, but Scott, this isn't about us, this is about Jesus. Jesus is praying about himself. In the first five verses of this prayer, Jesus is praying about himself. There's implications for us, but what you see as you go through the prayer is he also prays for us, specifically for us. He prays for his, in verses one through five, Jesus is praying for himself. And there's implications for how we live as a result of what he did to glorify the Father. But if you go through the rest of the prayer, you'll see in verses six through 19, he prays for his immediate disciples, those 11 guys that are there with him right at that moment. And then verse 20 through the end, of the end of the chapter, he's praying for you and for me, for everybody. And he prays for us still to this day, by the way. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us he's interceding on our behalf. And if you want an idea of the type of stuff he prays about, what's on his heart, then you look at this prayer. And so we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but let me read you a couple verses out of each one of those sections. In John chapter 17 and verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And remember in, in verse 6 through 19, he's praying for his immediate disciples, those dudes that, those guys were kind of losers, just FYI. If you didn't read like the gospel up till this point, they're known as ye of little faith by Jesus. They get it wrong more than they get it right. He's just told them in chapter 16, you're all gonna abandon me. And did you see he didn't pray here? They'll, they'll glorify me someday. He says, I've received glory from them because they believed, even though they blow it. Oh, that should be great news to everyone here because you know what? You don't have to be a varsity Christian or some super Christian to glorify God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do and whoever you are, you're created for the glory of God. And so here you got these guys before the resurrection bringing glory to Jesus. And jump down a little bit more in verse 22. So in verse 20, he starts praying for all who will believe. So he's praying specifically about us right now. He says, the glory that you've given to me, talking to the Father, the Son, talking to the Father, the glory that the Father has given to the Son, he says, I've given to them. That's us. 
Why? That they may be one, even as we are one. And then, then he goes on to talk about that we'd be sent so that then ultimately we'd know Jesus to bring glory to him. And he, so he talks about the glory then, glory in the past for us, glory now for us here now. And then he talks about glory in the future, verse 24. Jump down. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. You know, when, when the whole place is lit up and we don't need a sun or moon, that we would bask and be, be able to behold that glory. So you were, you were created for glory. And there's evidences of it all around us. We see it all the time. Maybe you just become more aware of it now. Think about times when people celebrate or they enjoy something and you see them crying out for glory. I remember one of the most celebratory events that I've been a part of ever before was in 2013. I was at this uh, special event out in Pasadena, California. I don't know if you've been to Pasadena or not, but the weather's always beautiful. It's like here today. It's always beautiful uh, weather there. Every time I've been there, once in 2013. And, um, <clears throat> and I was coming together for this special uh, time. We were going to gather together. We were in this stadium of about 90,000 people and had been there for about three and a half hours. We were coming up to the climax of this event. It was fourth and one. Did you think it was like a Christian rally? What'd you think? It was a football game. For those of you who aren't picking up what I'm putting down here, it's a football game. Fourth and one at the Rose Bowl. And my favorite team, the Michigan State Spartans, were playing the Stanford Cardinals. Now, they're the Stanford Cardinals, but I learned something about them that day. I still don't understand. If you went to Stanford, you're a very smart person. But why in the world is your mascot a Christmas tree? I don't understand that. And so we're here. It's fourth and one. They've played for three and a half hours. My team, the Michigan State Spartans, are leading by four points. Less than two minutes to go in the game. Stanford's got the ball. They're driving the ball. I'm sitting real close to the line of scrimmage and where, where I'm seated in a sea of people that are dressed in green. That's the Michigan State Spartans. And there's a whole bunch of other people that are dressed in red. And maybe that's why they had a Christmas tree there dancing around. I don't know. <laughs> but we're there and everybody's, it's a tense moment because as they were moving the ball, they kind of hit a stall and they got to fourth and one, which was really like fourth and inches. And if you're familiar with that game, you know what it means is if they don't get the couple inches here, then they're going to lose the ball and we win the game. If we stop them, then we win the game. That'll be awesome. But if they get it, then they keep going and they might win the game. And so it's a tense moment. Everybody's nervous. All the fans are cheering. People got their keys out. This is a key play. They're shaking their keys. People are screaming. The weather's perfect. The sun's gone down because it's been three and a half hours that we're out there. Cheerleaders from the green team are cheering. Cheerleaders from the red team are cheering. Got the Christmas tree over in the corner dancing around doing his whatever. How do you dance inside of a Christmas tree costume? But he was. And so he's over there doing his thing. Team's called timeout. When they come out, oh, to make the story a little bit better and more Hollywood-like, we arguably had, in 2013, the Michigan State Spartans had the best defense in the entire country. But our middle linebacker was ineligible for that game. Middle linebacker is a key position if you're familiar with football. And instead, there's a guy that was a former walk-on. His name was Kyle Ellsworth. He's number 41. It's fourth and one, and number 41 is the center of this play. Isn't that interesting? It's like Rudy, and you're like, that didn't really happen. It really happened. I was there. And what happens is they come out, Stanford does, to snap the ball, and prematurely, number 41 starts to move like he knows what's going on and nobody else knows what's going on. He did. He watched the film. And so the quarterback snaps the ball. Everybody's standing on their feet. Everybody's in suspense. He turns to hand it off and 41 makes a move and jumps over the line of scrimmage and hits the running back. And he doesn't get it. And all the people in red are totally silent. There's a, verb, or there's a word for that in the Psalms. Selah. Just reflect on this for a moment. <laughs> but that's not what the people in green were doing. Do you know what we all did? We all threw our arms up in the air. It's the universal sign of victory, right? And we're selling, confetti starts flying. The scoreboard starts flashing. 
Tens of thousands of people are cheering. I'm high-fiving people I've never seen before in my life, like just kind of climbing through the seats there. And then I just stop, and I'm like, this is an amazing moment. And I turn, and I start to watch. People are hugging each other that don't even know each other. <laughs> this is over a game played by 18 to, depends on how long you take to get through college, but 23, 25-year-old kids with a ball. They're just playing a game with a little ball. We're talking about the Savior of all mankind. And maybe you don't like sports, maybe that's not your thing, but have you ever been to the symphony and the music is so amazing and it moves you and you stand up on your feet and you clap or you eat a meal and there's not even, you eat a meal that's so good and you're just like, mmm, like you don't even have, you can't even say, it is delectable, it's the fusion of the, and you don't even get to talk like the food channel, right? Like you just get to, you're just like, man, that is good. And you see people take pictures of it on Facebook or you, you watch Diners, Drivers, and Dies and people are trying to describe it and they're crying out for glory. It's hardwired in us. You see young girls, they go to a concert or a, a, some celebrity event and they see this person they've been crushing on forever and they're like worshiping this person, passing out. It's like long, we have a longing for glory and it's okay, it's okay. It's okay to eat a meal and think it tastes so amazing. It's okay to throw your arms up in victory. It all just shows that you've been hardwired for glory. Here's the problem. We're glory thieves. And we don't attribute it to where it belongs. When you start to grasp this, you realize as a believer in Jesus Christ, everybody can enjoy a good meal. But as a believer, you know the creator who put those things together in the way that he made your mouth and so that they come together and it creates this. Because you know not just the creation, but the creator you know who gave those gifts and abilities to those kids who play that game and you know who made it a perfect pitch and, and knows how to make a harmony go together. Like you know the one. But the problem is all of us are glory thieves. And you see it back in the garden in Genesis chapter three. What's the temptation for Eve? It's not just that there's this shiny fruit. You will be like God. You can be independent of him. You can get the glory. And she takes it. And so does Adam. And so do we. And the New Testament talks about it. The New Testament says this in Romans chapter 1. See, we all, there's enough in creation for us to all know that there is a creator. And that's what Romans chapter 1 tells us. But then in Romans chapter 1 verse 21, it says this, for although they knew God, they knew there was a creator, they couldn't have been reconciled to him without knowing the name of Jesus Christ. There's no name by which we will be saved or the name of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, we saw that he is the way, the truth, the life. There's no one that comes to the Father but through him, but everybody can know there's a creator. He says, but here's what happens. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And it goes on in Romans chapter 1 and talks about it. The way this, what this leads to is that there's things that are so unnatural that we'd call them natural. We've gotten there, right? But we're not just talking about homosexuality. You know what it lists in there? Gossip. Nobody here would do that, though, I'm sure. Slander. See, we all do it. You know what it's a sign of? It's a sign that we're glory thieves. If you don't believe that, here's a real practical way. Scroll through whatever social media network you like, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and everybody's crying out. Either, look at me, I'm awesome, or woe is me, I'm terrible, which by the way is a passive way of being proud and saying, somebody please tell me I'm awesome. Tell me I'm worthy of love. Somebody give me some glory. We're all glory thieves, but you were created to reflect glory to God. So the question is, how do we do that? 
And because this is a glory book, it's all over the book. I'm going to give you a few things that aren't in this passage just for you to study on your own later. I've got one friend who says you should take notes at church. It makes you look more holy than the person sitting next to you. That's one motive. Uh, But I think this might actually be helpful. And so if you want to write these down, here are some things for you. Here's a way to glorify God by relying on his promises. You want a verse for that? Romans 4.20. Praising him, we've already done this morning, Psalm 50, verse 23. Confessing Christ, Philippians chapter 2, verse 11 says that every knee, there's no name above the name of Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow and tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no other name by which men shall be saved but the name of Jesus. Confessing Christ, some of you need to do that at the end of this service. Here's one that I bet nobody will raise their hand and volunteer for. How many people want to glorify God? Then 1 Peter 4, 14, by suffering for him. I'm not signing up, but it happens, and it gives us an opportunity to do it. Having patience and affliction, Isaiah 24, 15, being faithful, 1 Peter 4, 11. Those are just some examples. There's hundreds in the Bible. But in this passage of Scripture, we get two. You have to experience the first one before the second one, though. And the first one is this. It's by experiencing, and that word's important. It's not just by having, by experiencing eternal life. If you go back into the passage, you'll see when Jesus is praying, he prays how he glorified the Father. So he lifts up his eyes and he begins to speak and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Verse two, since you've given him, here's how he glorifies, him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And so he gives eternal life so then you'd assume that the next verse would say the way that we glorify him then is by receiving it, by having eternal life. That's not what verse three says. Look at what verse three says. And this is eternal life present tense, that they know you, present tense, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So it's not by having, it's by experiencing. You see, all throughout the book of John, John's telling us through the lips of Jesus what eternal life, that eternal life is something, right? Like it's out there, there's something we should want for, for God so loved the world, John three sixteen, That whoever believe on, that he gave, he's a giver, that whoever would believe on Jesus would have eternal life. Jesus says, his own lips, John 10, 10, I've come that they could have life, have it to the fullest, abundant life. John tells us when he writes this book, John chapter 20, verse 31, I wrote these, there's a bunch of stuff I could tell you about Jesus, a lot of cool stories, but I wrote these ones down so that you would believe. And by believing, have eternal life. But here, here we get something unlike anywhere else. From the lips of Jesus, a definition of eternal life. And eternal life, he doesn't say, is just something you, you get. You know, I, I prayed that one time, and now I have it. It's something you experience today, not one day when you die. But what he says, and this is eternal life, that they, here's what eternal life is, they get a ticket to heaven. Nope. And one day, if they just hold on to this precious possession, they're going to be a quiz, and they're going to know the right answer, and because they went to church, the right answer is Jesus. Jesus, thank you, who's in the first service too. <laughs> this is eternal life, that you know him. That word knows, present tense. You know him today. This is a myth about eternal life. Some people think that eternal life means that I get to live forever. Let me tell you a secret. Everyone's going to live forever. The question is where and in what condition. Eternal life is just not about the quantity of your days. It's about the quality of life you experience And if you receive eternal life and you do have eternal life, then you're supposed to experience that eternal life starting today. It's present tense. See, the problem is for many of us, we treat eternal life kind of like many of us would treat this penny if we had this penny. 
And uh, what if I told you this was the most valuable penny in the world? And some of you would be like, what's it worth, like a nickel? <laughs> like how much can a penny? Most of you, if you're honest, you, don't, you see a penny on the ground and you're like, whatever, it's, just a it's not even worth pausing to pick up a penny. You may change your view after I tell you about the most valuable penny in the world. They were stamped in 1943. The most valuable one was stamped in Denver, so it'll have a little D on it. It'll be a Lincoln penny and say 1943 with a little D. And it auctioned in 2010 for $1.7 million. It's rare because at that time, the type of metals they were using, this one was, it kind of slipped in. And there's only, I think there, they, I read that there were 40 of them. I think they know of like less than a dozen of them in circulation. But the Denver one, the D one, is the most valuable one. So imagine, and this isn't the Denver one, anybody who's thinking about, I hope he leaves it up there. I'm going to go up and talk to him after the service. No, this isn't. It's just a, it's just a, a, a fake one, but, or it's a real penny, but it's not the 1943 one, so it's probably worth it, you know, a penny. And, uh, but let's just say that it is the 1943 penny. Or at least you became aware of it. And now all of you are going to go home and go through your change, right? That's how it's going to work. Um, but let's say after the service today, just imagine with me, uh, that you're going to look for a new apartment. And you go to that apartment, and the realtor's there showing you the apartment. And you notice there's some change on the counter. Because of what you learned in the sermon, you're like, well, I'm just going to see a nickel. I'm really interested in the penny. And you see a 1943D penny sitting on the counter at that apartment complex. And then you think, well, if I just take it at stealing probably shouldn't do that. I hope that's what you think. And then you go, but what I'm going to do, I'm just going to hide it underneath the little carpet here in this to make sure the cleaners don't get it. And I'm definitely coming back for this apartment, but you go home and you realize the building's for sale. And the building costs $150,000, $200,000. You go, that's a lot of money. But I wonder if I could come up with that much money and then that, the penny really would be mine if I bought the building. And so you sell everything you got. You sell your car, you're, you're selling you know, furniture, you're selling your underwear, like you're selling everything. Try and come up with some cash. You beg, borrow, steal. You come up with enough money to buy that building and you buy the building and you go back and the penny's there. Do you know there's a verse in the Bible like that? In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. This is the kingdom of heaven. It's like a treasure that's hidden in a field and a guy finds it and he, he's not an idiot. He buries the treasure. And this is in his joy, he sells everything he has. Because think about it, if you bought the apartment complex, not only did the apartment complex for $200,000, but you got the $1.7 million penny in there, that's a great investment if you're not an investor. But my question is, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, or you with the penny, now what? Now what do you do? Let's be honest, what some of us would do, if we got this penny, we'd take and we'd have it put in some nice plastic, and then we'd get an insurance policy on it, and then we'd put it wherever rich people put expensive coins, we'd probably do some investigation on that, and we'd store it, and you could use it in lots of different ways, but you just kind of, most of us, we'd just have it. Maybe someday we give it to our kids, and that's how many of us treat eternal life. We, we have, yeah, I prayed, I trusted Jesus. I got that thing. One day, one day that's going to become relevant, the day I die. But today, I mean, it's just like something to look forward to, right? Like you said, that we live for more than just this place. I got it. Eternal perspective. I'm look. No, it's here and now. It impacts here and now. So you think about what you could do with this penny. You could use it as collateral. You could sell it. You could benefit from the penny. Like there's lots of things you could do. What about your eternal life? He says here in this passage, it's not that one day you're going to know God, that one day you'll experience him. You're going to experience him. Present tense. And the word for know is a word for intimacy that's oftentimes used when translating the Bible for the intimacy a husband and wife experience with one another. 
And so this is not some static thing, like I just, I know God one day, and then that's kind of taken care of. This is a dynamic thing that happens throughout our lives as we relate with him. And so how do we do that? It'd be easy for me right now to rail against the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. But I want to pause and say, in order to know him and experientially, you do need to know about him. And so let me say this, to, there are a lot of new believers in our church. If you're not one of the new believers, I'm not really talking to you right now, so don't, don't be bothered that you already know this information. Let me tell you something you should do to grow in your relationship with Jesus is read his word every day. Because when you come to his word, you learn about him, which then helps you to encounter him. But let me tell you what else about this word. It's living and active. It's dynamic enough that things were written thousands of years ago speak into your life right in this very moment. And it's God's voice speaking to you. Like we speak to him when we pray, but he is actually speaking into your life through this word. And so say like, for instance, you come to a passage of scripture like this. What is this? How do we encounter God through a passage of scripture like this? Well, think about what it reveals to us about who Jesus is. He's talking about here, glorify me, Father. Do you know what his glorification is in the New Testament? It's the cross. Like to many people, that don't seem very glorified. He's saying, glorify, it's time for the cross now. And when we get to John chapter 19, we're going to see the cross and what happens and the gruesomeness that takes place of, of what the cross looks like, and that's his glory. But let me tell you what the, the cross teaches you. There's no limit to his love for you. There's no limit to which, to which he would stop to love you, for you to have a relationship with him. Anybody that's out there going, does anyone love me? Yes, yes, God loves you. And there's no limit to it. Let me read you this quote I read this week by pastor and author Kent Hughes. If Jesus had stopped short of the cross, that would have proved there's a degree of love to which he, God, is not prepared to go for us. The cross proves there's no limit to God's love. So if he had just come and done some miracles, washed some feet, been a good teacher, I've been good, but no cross? Let me tell you what, if there's no cross, there's no relationship because you know what you learn at the cross? It's where the holiness of God and the righteousness and the justice and the wrath of God come into contact with the compassion and the grace and the limitless love that God has for you. There's no limit for God's love for you. His holiness you see there because he can't just overlook sin. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So who's going to shed? For God so loved the world that he gave his son so that he would shed his blood so that your sins could be forgiven. That's why there's only one. What kind of God would he be if there was more than one way? That he would let his son experience his wrath, to have his wrath poured out on him so that he could remain righteous and gracious? And then it shows you there's no extent he won't go to to come and get you. And I know that from some of your stories, by the way. Because I know some of you, I know some of when, when the Holy Spirit brought conviction on your heart and that has to happen for you to become a Christian and you turn from your sin and ask Jesus Christ to be your savior. For some of you, it was when you were in preschool. And for some of you, it was when you were in prison. And for some of you, it happened when you were at a Bible study. And that's when I came to Christ, was through a Bible study. For some of you, it happened at a brothel. For some of you, it happened, at, you, conviction came upon you when you were at that abortion clinic. And for some of you, it was in this very auditorium. And it's different for everybody's story. But there's no place that Jesus won't come to get you. There is no limit to his love for you. And the cross shows us that. And so you come to passages of scripture like this and you realize, I am loved. That he would glorify, you glorified by shedding your blood on the cross for my sins. Oh, you are loved. You gotta, you gotta, gotta be in the word. He wants to know you. 
But not only that, but you got to have that first. This next part is, is a second thing that happens. These, not always does stuff happen chronologically here in the Bible. Sometimes life's just dynamic and it's messy. But you have to behold him before you can become and then you reveal. You've got to encounter him and then he transforms you and then you reflect that to others. And so the next point that we see here in this passage is we glorify God by revealing his glory. By revealing who he is. Jesus said, and John, or John tells us in John chapter 1 and verse 18 about Jesus, no one's ever seen God, but the one who was seated at the right hand, the Son, he's revealed. He's made him known to us. And we've read the first five verses, but look at verse 6 if you brought your Bible. It's up on the screen if you didn't bring your Bible. John chapter 17, verse 6. I have, this is Jesus praying still, manifested your name. He's talking about revealing God here. I've made you known. He says, I've manifested your name. Now, you've got to understand what, what was being heard there by these guys that they're hearing Jesus pray this prayer to his father, these Jewish men, to hear that I've made your name known. You've got to understand the context. In the context, if you were an ordinary person, you could never speak the name of God. In fact, many people went to extremes to try and not let any common people know what the name of God was. And so when we talk about name, it's not just in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses said, I, I need to know your name. And God says, I am. And then Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the way. I am the vine. I am the living water. It's not just that. It's revealing his character, revealing who he is. And at that time, Jewish people, they couldn't speak the name. And so you read your Bible, they take different letters out. So it was just a few letters that were there. And you'd come to read in your Bible and you, you'd pronounce a different name when you got to the name of God. Because out of reverence, you didn't say the name. And what Jesus is saying here is that, that you, were, you seemed remote and invisible and distant to these people. And I've made you accessible and I brought them into relationship with you. See, we don't need a priest to go to God. Because we're a royal priesthood, First Peter chapter 2. We get direct access. We can have his name on our lips. We get direct access to him because Jesus has revealed his glory, has made him known to us. And so what do we do? What do we do? Well, we get these misconceptions about God. Some people still think he's distant and he's far off. I was telling some of the Dallas guys the other day, uh, I remember when I first started going to church, I went to church for about six months as a non-Christian, just trying to check this God thing out. And I remember walking away and stopping church and saying, you know what, he doesn't exist. And these church people just can't deal with that. He's like a crutch they need to use to get through life because they can't deal with all the problems of life and evil and all that stuff. And, and so that's fine for them. I'm trying to blow up their thing. But God obviously doesn't exist. Or if he does exist, he's just so distant and doesn't care. He's not involved with his creation. But then I had an encounter with the living God. And he convicted me with the passage of scripture we recently went through in John chapter 14 where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he impressed on my heart in that moment. didn't speak audibly to me, but spoke on my heart and said, are you going to waste your life pursuing a whole bunch of different other options and you're going to end up here anyways or are you going to trust my son as your savior? I had an encounter with the living God and ever since then I've been like Moses in the Old Testament. Have you read the Old Testament with Moses? That guy's greedy for God's glory. Because what happens is Moses in Exodus chapter 33, he blows it, all the people blow it, and then he says to God, let us see your glory. Moses had the burning bush experience. Most people aren't ever getting that. Moses walked across the Red Sea on dry land. Moses gets to go up on the mountain and be with God when everybody else doesn't. And then he goes, talk about bold. Let me see your glory. It reminds me of kids, like my kids. So you got grandparents and parents in here. Do you ever toss a kid, little kid up in the air? And then what do they do? do it again. I've got four girls. If I toss one up in the air, then it's like three more. Circle up. They're like waiting for their turn. And I've got one who's really scared. She's like, no, 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 don't do it. And then he tosses her up and she's like, do it again. And if you stop, it's like, it's my turn. There's like a big fight that happens. Just keep doing it. I want to I experience it again. 
And so I had that encounter where I trusted Jesus as my Savior, but then it's not like now you're all set. It's like, God, I want to see your glory again. I want you to do something in my life again. So we come to the scriptures to encounter God again, but you know what? In the New Testament, it's even better. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the apostle Paul is talking to the Corinthians about this, and he's telling them a story about Moses. Now Moses would go up on the mountain, and even though it was a, uh, the law, and even though it was a time of condemnation, because nobody could measure up to the law, that Moses would go up, and just from being in the presence of God, God's radiance, his glory would shine off of Moses' face, and he had to veil his face because the Israelites couldn't handle it. But look at what he says about us. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says this, Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, talking about the, the, the law, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Amen, anybody? Like, we, so we just talked about, when you trust Christ, you receive the Spirit of Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth to guide you so that you would experience life the way that Jesus intended for you to experience it. You get that by depending upon him, not stealing his glory, trying to live by your own strength. It says, for it was the glory and the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. And if you jump down a couple verses in that chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, it says this, and we all, all y'all, with unveiled face, beholding, beholding comes first before becoming, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed, there's the becoming, but get this, it's not even necessarily the radical changes in your life. I once was lost, now I'm found. I once couldn't see, now I can see. But look at what it says. Transformed in the same image of the glorious one from one degree of glory to another. I'm a little less impatient today than I was yesterday because something God spoke to me as I encountered him. I'm a little more like Jesus than I was, a little more generous from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so how does it practically, what does it practically flesh itself out and look like in our lives? Just because I want to be practical in this passage, we're not going to try and unpack the rest of John chapter 17, but let me give you three things that it looks like that we see in John chapter 17. It looks like being different than this world. And we see that in his prayer. If you jump down to verse 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word sanctify is just a big church word, big Bible word to mean set apart. Some of your translations might say set apart. It means be different. We want to glorify God, we glorify God by being different than this world. Think about this. We talk about that we live for a place other than this place, that this place is not our home, that our home is in heaven, that we've got a different citizenship, that we're foreigners here. And just over the last two weeks, what we've talked about, the Spirit of God lives inside of us. How ridiculous would it be if the Spirit of God came to reside inside of you and you live the same? Like, think about just the idea of holiness, which, you know, in our age, we don't want to talk about holiness because we want everybody to, hey, you want to be legalistic, so we don't want to talk about holiness. It's like everything's just cool. No, it's not. And so, shouldn't we be more holy than Mormon people? That's a cult, by the way. The Spirit of God lives inside of us. Shouldn't we be more loving than just your neighbor? Like, did ever, if the God lives inside of us, what would this look like? Well, you can go to the Bible. Look at the book of Acts and the way they lived as a church and compare it to what we're experiencing today. In the church as a whole, not just in America, not trying to bash a model, but just as a whole, do, you, do we see people doing, they were a mega church from day one, by the way. It wasn't because they all, you know, went to UNC together and like basket weaving or whatever. Well, they didn't have everything in common in the sense they were all the same. There were 3,000 of them from day one, from different nationalities, different backgrounds. But you know, you know what they were like? As if one person in their community had a need, 
other people who had means in their community would sacrifice, not just out of their abundance, would sacrifice so that that need would be met. That'd be like being a family, is what that'd be like. Not just a bunch of people that what we have in common is what service we attend at a religious place that dispenses goods. So, so what if, what if we, that's how one of the ways we were different is that it wasn't because we all just like the same stuff and hung out with one another and we're all friends, but because we have one spirit, one Lord, and one baptism that we'd care for one another like a family. They were known for being generous. They were known for being transparent. And so what if, not just to your neighbor, but what if just with one another we started to stop pretending with each other and just were honest about our weaknesses? Doesn't it say that he's, he's made known, glorified in our weakness? And why are we so afraid of our weaknesses? What, what, what if we got past some of that? That'd be different. That'd be set apart. That'd be, that'd be, that'd be changed one degree to another. And, and then it goes on and it says here that we'd be one. Jump down to verse 20. So don't ask for these only. I'm talking about his immediate disciples, his 11. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They also may be in us that we'd be unified. Not because we all like all the exact same stuff and all agree on everything, but that because we have Jesus as our Savior, that we could overcome those differences and that we'd be unified in the gospel. And I don't know if you remember or if you were here, but on June 10th, I preached from this passage of Scripture and I preached a whole sermon on verse 20. I'm gonna give you the cliff notes right now. You, we should be one. Not because we focus on unity, but because we focus on Jesus Christ. On June 10th, if you weren't here, was the day that two churches from different denominations, different backgrounds, different preferences, different traditions came together as one church. And what I did that day, and you don't have to remember the whole sermon, because I don't even remember the whole sermon, but I remember bringing, I said, hey, I need three volunteers, and three people came up, and I had one stand here, one stand here, and I had one stand up at the top. And I told the person who was standing up at the top, I said, you're Jesus. (laughs) So if you remember who that person was, I dare you to go up to him today and go, how's that working? (laughs) You living like Jesus now? And uh, so they were Jesus just for the sake of the, the exercise. And then I went over to this person, and I talked about their story, and then I talked about them growing closer to Jesus. And whenever this person had a radically different story, but we're also growing close to Jesus. And so the way that you get to be one with one another is not by focusing on one another, or focusing on oneness, is by focusing on Jesus. It's relational oneness. He says, as the Father, as the Father and the Son are one. They're one in essence. Different in person. But just as we are one, he does everything the Father tells him to do, that they, that the church, you want to send a message to the world, you can tell the world, you can come just as you are, we like it, but if we don't even love each other, So what if the church could actually be a place where you could have different races, different preferences, different thoughts, even, dare I say, political views, and still be one in Jesus Christ? That that would be something that would glorify God, according to this passage. But But you're not holy for the sake of holiness. You're not different for the sake of differentness. And you're not one for the sake of oneness. Did you you see the last part of that verse? I didn't read it yet. It says, Father, in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We glorify God by living our lives on mission for him. We're going to get to John chapter 20, and we're going to talk about being sent, that we're the sent ones. All of us are sent out, just as the Father sent Jesus, so is he sending us? So just dream with me for a minute, church. What if, what if we would live in such a way that we believe church wasn't just a place we came to get some preaching or to get some music or to be encouraged in our soul, but that we actually believe that the church was plan A to reach the world. There is no plan B and that you're the church. 
And what if instead of coming for the church to dispense religious goods to us, we came to be equipped to go out as soldiers in the battlefields that we come into contact with all the time so that we could live in victory and be reminded of the truths that that impact our souls, that we would come with an expectation that we were going to encounter the living God. Now, do I like that song today? Was it too loud? Did he go too long? Always yes, by the way. But then that we would actually say, but God, meet with me, transform me so that I can behold your glory, become who you desire for me to become, and then reveal you to the world. You know what we'd be doing? Letting our light so shine before men that they would see our lives and they'd be transformed. So what do we do today? I hope nobody leaves here asking, why do I exist? You were made for his glory. The problem is many of us are glory thieves, so you need to repent of stealing his glory. And then you need to behold his glory. Ask him to reveal it to you. And then you go out and you share it with other people. Not because the pastor said you should. But you go out because you've experienced it. You've got to share it. And so maybe for some of you, you actually share the gospel, verbally give a witness of Jesus Christ to someone else in your life before we meet again next week. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's some relative up in Rhode Island. I don't know who. Let God speak that into your heart. But as you're beholding his glory, he overcomes you with his goodness and you have to share it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing your glory to us. Thank you for being so worthy of honor and praise and glory. Thank you for the lamb that was slain, your son Jesus Christ, that showed us your love. God, we want to glorify you even in the simple things, even when we go to lunch, in the songs that we sing in just a moment. And the lives that we live, the things that are true in our heart, like the disciples, we don't always get it right. We mess up all the time. But we believe, we believe. Help us with our unbelief, Father. Please. Some of you here might need to place your belief in Jesus Christ right now. If you've never believed upon Jesus, you can become a follower of his. The Bible says that you acknowledge your sin before him. The wages of your sin is death, but there's a gift that God wants to give you. It's eternal life. And the way you receive that gift is that you believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead. If you believe that in your heart that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means you're surrendering control of your life to him, that he's going to take control. Then the Bible promises you will be rescued from your sin. You will have eternal life. And now you get to begin in that relationship of knowing him, experiencing eternal life. If you want to do that right now, then you just pray this prayer with me. Father God, I acknowledge that I am a sinner. You can say those words. You can say it your own way, in your own heart. You can say it out loud if you want to or pray silently. And I believe your son Jesus died for my sins and I want to ask Jesus to be my savior right now in this moment. The Bible says that if you pray the prayer, all of heaven is rejoicing. God's receiving glory over one sinner who repents. And we just ask before you leave today, if you just mark on your connection card that you prayed, prayed to receive Jesus so we can follow up with you and help you grow in that relationship with Jesus. Some of you might need to repent right now of stealing God's glory. And if you want to repent of, when we sing songs just a moment, you can come up here and kneel down in the front and pray. Nobody will mess with you. None of the pastors or elders will come up and talk to you. But if you want to talk with a pastor or elder, we'll be towards the back of the room. If you're a pastor or elder, I just ask right now in this very moment before everybody else even gets standing up, if you just go off to the side of the room or off to the back of the room, just be available for people to come and, and pray with you. And so I see a couple folks that are moving to go back there. Father, I pray that you would lead us into your presence, but also that we'd have a, a spirit of freedom that if somebody here doesn't want to sing or they need to continue to pray, that you would just speak to their hearts and they could remain seated. They could be in that spot. But Father, will you... Will you please help us behold your glory in these next moments? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.